Hello and welcome to Gimme Some Truth, the research-based podcast unraveling the fact from the fiction in the history of mine and your favorite band, The Beatles. My name is Obadiah and I am your host. Well, my thing was America. Mm. No British acts had gone to America and been successful. Mm. They'd all come back. So I remember taking Brian Epstein aside, saying, Brian, I said, we can't go to America until we've got a number one record there. We've got to wait. Mm. And we did. We waited and waited, and it didn't happen until I want to hold your hand. This was like, yeah, we've arrived. We are famous. This story, as told to Rick Rubin in the McCartney 321 documentary, should be very familiar because it is one of Paul's favorite, most consistent stories about the Beatles. Here he is telling the same story 20 years earlier for Anthology. I think one of the cheekiest things we ever did was say to Brian Epstein, we're not going to America till we've got a number one. And the reason we did that, we'd seen a lot of people like uh, Adam Faith, Cliff Richard, British stars, quite big stars over in Britain, go over to America and be like third or fourth on the bill to people like Frankie Avalon, who we didn't really respect, or Fabian and people like that, who were a little bit sort of one-hit wonders to us. So we thought that's the kiss of death, is to go over to America and, you know, come down in your career, really, and take a, take a downward step. So we didn't want to do that. So for some reason, we just said to Brian, right, we're not going to America till we've got a number one record. Although this story is consistent, the question is, is Paul's memory the truth? Humans are great storytellers. Stories are the way we make sense of the universe and our place in it, how we communicate with each other and preserve our collective legacy. But what happens time and again is that a good story is remembered and accepted as history over the true sequence of events. For Paul, the good story is that the Beatles were able to control the order of events to succeed in America where others had failed before them. This narrative simplifies the events that led from early 1963 until their Pan Am flight touched down in New York on the 7th of February, 1964. The truth, however, is almost always more complex and nuanced than the good stories. In this episode, we will trace the true timeline of events that led to the Beatles' American arrival and triumph. The story of the Beatles' success in the United States begins with a number of failures. The group's debut single, Love Me Do, backed with P.S. I Love You, released on the 7th of October 1962 in Britain, was the first of four singles rejected by Capitol Records. EMI, the parent company of the Beatles' Parlophone label, had bought Capitol Records in 1955. As part of the deal, Capital was given the right of first refusal with no obligation for the American release of all EMI artists. The president of Capitol Records from 1962, Alan Livingston, assigned one of his producers, Dave Dexter, the role of screening all EMI records for possible U.S. release. 
This, however, was not a huge priority for Capitol, mostly because of the poor track record for British artists in the American charts. For example, two of Cliff Richard's top 20 British hits, Move It and Living Loving Doll, had been released by Capitol in the late 1950s and failed to chart. Love Me Do was rejected by Capitol, and no effort was made to place it with any other label. The single had done better than expected in the UK, but only peaked at number 17. The single would, however, be released on Capital of Canada on the 18th of February, 1963, making it the first North American Beatles release. Similarly, Dave Dexter rejected the Beatles' second single, Please Please Me, backed with Ask Me Why, later in 1962 or early in 1963. This time, however, George Martin, as head of Parlophone, pushed back against EMI to get it released in the U.S. The record was then given to the EMI's U.S. agency, Transglobal Music Co. Incorporated, to place with a different American label. Please Please Me was also rejected by Atlantic, Lori and Liberty Records, and ultimately the single was licensed to a small, independent R&B label based in Chicago called VJ Records and released on the 7th of February, 1963. VJ had recently and successfully released Frank Ifield's I Remember You under a similar agreement with Transglobal Music Co. Ifield's single reached number 5 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, and so the label had nothing to lose by taking a chance on the Beatles. Despite ads placed in the major music trade papers and radio play on Chicago's popular WLS station, Please Please Me failed to chart and only sold about 5,500 copies upon its initial release. Although disappointed with Please Please Me's performance, VJ opted to release the Beatles' next single, From Me to You, backed with Thank You Girl, around the second to last week of May 1963. The commonly cited date of 6th of May for the release is most likely incorrect. As part of the five-year licensing agreement VJ signed on the 10th of January, they acquired the right of first refusal for future Beatles releases. Capitol Records were not offered and therefore did not reject From Me to You. It was offered first to VJ, and they released it. Again, despite VJ's promotional efforts and radio play in Illinois on WFRX and Los Angeles on KRLA, For Me To You failed to crack the top 100 charts. The record sold better than Please Please Me, shifting nearly 13,000 copies by the end of the summer. VJ also prepared mono and stereo masters for a Beatles album release on the 22nd of June. This album would be called Introducing the Beatles, and was identical to the Beatles' debut Parlophone LP, Please Please Me. The album was planned for release in the summer of 63, but due to financial troubles, the label cancelled the release along with others. 
Vijay was not doing well by this time and was sinking into debt and disarray under the leadership of President Ewart Abner. Abner, who was responsible for much of the label's promotional success and growth, was also responsible for the financial troubles caused by a personal gambling habit. The situation was so bad that on the 8th of August, Transglobal Music Co. sent Vijay a telegram cancelling their licenses due to the label's failure to pay royalties and thus breach of contract. The telegram called for Vijay to immediately cease manufacturing and distribution of any and all records containing performances of Frank Ifield or the Beatles. Because of the license termination with Vijay, it was Capitol Records whom EMI offered the Beatles' next single, She Loves You, backed with I'll Get You. Once again, Dave Dexter turned down the Beatles' release and instead opted to release Frank Ifield's I'm Confessin'. George Martin was furious but had no way to force Capitol to take She Loves You, so the single was shopped around yet again by Transglobal Music. We were trying to get in America all the time. I really thought She Loves You would have broken the American. But if you think of our frustration here, um, we were being turned down by the company, which EMI actually owned. And I was so frustrated by this. I, I said, well, if they're not going to let us, if they're not going to put it out. I mean, in the case of From Me To You was the first one we, we offered them. Um, we'll, they can't deny us other people putting them out. So I would then take the record back from them and try and get it out with another label. And I did negotiations with Swan and with VJ, each of whom, very tiny labels in the States, took one or the other titles. And they put those records out in America. And of course, being small labels, they didn't make a great deal of, uh, of, of um, success. In much the same way that the Beatles had been repeatedly rejected by all the major British labels in the first half of 1962, as Brian Epstein struggled to get them a recording contract, she Loves You was turned down by DECA, RCA Victor, Columbia Records, A&M, and other major U.S. labels. Finally, the single found release on the 16th of September with Philadelphia's Swan Records. Although, as a small independent label, Swan was less successful than VJ, it had an association with American bandstand host Dick Clark, who was one of the company's original owners. EMI hoped that Clark's national platform might help break the Beatles. Dick Clark did play She Loves You in the Rate a Record segment of American Bandstand to a lukewarm reaction. Clark remembers that a picture of the long-haired lads he showed to his studio audience was met with laughter. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Beatles' popularity in the UK was growing exponentially. She Loves You would go on to be the best-selling single in British history after its 23rd of August release. During a rare break from group commitments in the second half of September, George became the first Beatle to set foot on American soil when he traveled with his older brother Peter to Benton, Illinois, to visit their sister Louise, her husband Gordon Caldwell, and their two children. George had not seen his sister in seven years since she emigrated with her husband to Canada and had not yet met his nephew and niece. George was also the first Beatle to be interviewed on American radio when he talked to 17-year-old high school student Marcia Schaefer at local station WFRX in West Frankfurt, Illinois. 
most likely on Saturday the 21st of September. The next week, New York radio DJ Murray the K reportedly played She Loves You on WINS the same day he received a promo copy from an independent promotions agent named Bud Halliwell. Back in England from their various holidays, the Beatles picked up where they had left off and hit the ground running. In the month of October, the group flew to Scotland for a three-day mini-tour, made several big national TV appearances, most notably on Val Parnell's Sunday Night at the London Palladium, finished recording their second LP, and then flew to Sweden for their first tour outside of Britain. Their success and public adoration in the UK reached such a fever pitch that the term Beatlemania was coined during this month. The Beatles were being talked about so much in the British press that the excitement started spilling over into American newspapers. The Los Angeles Times reported about the Beatles winning the Melody Makers Top Vocal Group Award and the so-called Liverpool Sound as early as the 6th of October. Capitol Records president Alan Livingston took notice. He remembers bringing them up to Dave Dexter around this time. Dex, what about the Beatles? I read a lot about them. They're doing well in London. He said, Alan, they're a bunch of long-haired kids. They're nothing. Forget it. I said, okay. I trusted Dexter, and I had no interest in British product at that point. And so a few weeks went by, and I began to get nervous because of the British press. I could tell they were doing really well. So I said, Dex, what about the Beatles? And he said, Alan, forget it. They're nothing. I said, okay. And so we turned them down. But others were also taking notice. Yeah, well, when we were flying back, this is the story we heard. We were arriving from Stockholm into London Airport, and uh, at the same time, the the Prime Minister and the Queen Mother were also flying out, but the airport was just overrun with teenagers. There were thousands of them waiting for us to get back, and Ed Sullivan was supposed to have arrived at that time and wondered what was going on. And... uh, you know, he found out it was us arriving. And also, our manager went over to the States with uh, another singer called Billy J. Kramer. And uh, he did a couple of TV shows over there. And while he was over there, our manager uh, cut the bookings with Ed Sullivan. But he'd also heard of us from this London airport thing. And that's about it. When the Beatles returned to London from Sweden on the 31st of October... Newspapers estimated somewhere between 1,000 to 1,500 fans welcomed them home. Prime Minister Sir Alec Douglas Hume flying to Scotland, Elizabeth the Queen Mother returning from Belfast, and contestants from the Miss World beauty pageant flying in from all corners of the globe were virtually ignored as they too passed through London Airport this day. Ed Sullivan and his wife Sylvia were also passengers traveling through London and were impressed by the Beatles' reception. In the 22nd of October issue of the Daily Mirror, Brian Epstein discussed the next plans for his star group. Now I propose to promote the Beatles in America. In November, I'm going to the States with Billy Jay, and I'll start spreading the gospel of the Beatles in the USA. It was very good timing that Brian's scheduled trip to the States followed right on the heels of Ed Sullivan's run-in with the group. The day after the Beatles' victorious appearance on the Royal Variety Show, Brian and Billy J. Kramer flew to New York. Shortly after Brian's arrival, Sullivan's European talent coordinator, Peter Pritchard, arranged for him to meet with Sullivan at the latter's suite in the Delmonico Hotel on the 11th of February. Only initial negotiations began this day, 
and Brian was invited back to the hotel for a 5 p.m. dinner the following day with Sullivan and his producer and son-in-law, Bob Precht. It was during this second meeting that the details were hammered out for the Beatles to make three appearances, two live and one pre-taped, for the fee of $10,000. This broke down into $3,500 for each of the two live shows and the remaining $3,000 for the pre-taped show, plus Sullivan would cover the group's transportation and lodging expenses. With no meaningful success in the United States so far, Brian had very little bargaining power, but he insisted that the Beatles get top billing on the Ed Sullivan show. Despite Bob Precht's doubts, Sullivan agreed, at least in principle, because he recognized the similarity between Beatlemania and the hysteria that had surrounded Elvis Presley's ascent eight years before. Epstein and Sullivan sealed the deal with a handshake. And that was it. From the 12th of November, the Beatles were going to America with or without a hit single. This was two weeks before I Want to Hold Your Hand had even been released in the UK. As Brian and Billy Jay headed back to London on the 14th of November, the latest issue of Time magazine was about to hit the stands with a two-column article titled The New Madness in the music section on page 64. Newsweek followed three days later with a similar length piece titled Beatlemania, and Life magazine featured a picture of the group meeting Princess Margaret at the Royal Variety Show in their 13th of December issue, in which they described the Beatles as red hot. These were among the biggest publications in the U.S., and their taking notice indicates that momentum was building for the group outside of the U.K. Further proof that interest in the group was growing in America came on the 16th of November, when reporters and cameramen from three major U.S. television networks, NBC, ABC, and CBS, attended the Beatles concert at the Winter Gardens in Bournemouth. NBC was the first network to broadcast concert footage and a report by Edwin Newman two days later on the Huntley-Brinkley report. CBS followed four days after that with a story aired on the morning news with Mike Wallace that included an interview with the group backstage conducted by Josh Darsa. This same story was repeated on Walter Cronkite's evening news program on the 10th of December. NBC's The Jack Parr Show would also show footage from this concert and She Loves You from the Mersey Sound documentary on the 3rd of January 1964, becoming the first national entertainment show to broadcast the Beatles to the American public. Jack Parr nearly stole Ed Sullivan's exclusive, except the group did not appear in person on Parr's show. Also, Parr's intention for showing the footage was to make light of the craze sweeping Britain, not to promote their talent in America. And that was the way it worked out. We released uh, Please Please Me, flop. From Me to You, flop. Changed record labels, released She Loves You. They'd all been big hits in, in England, all been number one. All of them flops, nothing. The swan release of She Loves You had been even more disappointing than the two singles issued by VJ, and so in mid-October, Transglobal Music Co. transferred the licensing rights of Beatle Records back to Capitol. Sometime in November, Capitol was offered the latest Beatles single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, backed with This Boy. Say that something 
Amazingly, Dave Dexter suggested for a fourth time to turn down the group. When news of the rejection filtered back to London, Brian decided to take matters into his own hands by calling Capitol's president, Alan Livingston, directly. Brian confronted Livingston about his repeated decision to not release the Beatles' records, to which Livingston admitted to Brian's surprise that he had not actually heard any of the records. Brian pleaded for Livingston to give them a listen and reconsider Capitol's rejection. Livingston agreed and said he would call him back. The future of the Beatles' success in America hung on Livingston's opinion. But when he finally heard what all the hype was about, he liked the music and decided it was worth a shot. However, like Brian had pushed Ed Sullivan for top billing for his boys, Brian pushed Livingston to guarantee that Capitol would make a proper promotional effort by allocating $40,000 to the single. To spend that much money on promotion for a single at the time was unheard of, but Livingston agreed. In the end, it is unknown if and unlikely that Capital spent the full amount to promote the single because it got picked up by radio stations across the nation. It was predominantly the radio play that made I Want to Hold Your Hand number one. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What the large budget did do was inspire the Capital Promotional Department, led by National Album Merchandising Manager Paul Russell and Publicity Director Fred Martin, to get creative with how they advertised the single. The best ideas from the promotional campaign included a faux newspaper called the National Record News with an entire issue about the Beatles that was distributed in stores, as radio giveaways, and in high schools, Beatle booster buttons, and the Beatles are coming stickers and advertisements. But at that time, I didn't realize that Capitol Records had been told, you know, you can, okay, they wanted to have the Beatles, you see, then Brian Epstein said, okay, well, you can have them then on condition you spend $70,000, which sounded enormous, but they did. So that was part of the deal. They had to promote us, but I think there was more to it than that. They had a catchy single that took off. Plus, Ed Sullivan had seen us in England, and all the time and life and Newsweek had all put covers of the Beatles on their magazines prior to us arriving. So it was a surprise, though, because... We thought we'd have to work a little bit for this notoriety. As we have just covered, George got the amount spent by Capitol wrong in this memory from Anthology, but he also incorrectly stated that the Beatles had been on the covers of Time, Life, and Newsweek. In fact, the group would first be featured on the cover of Newsweek on the 24th of February 1964, after they returned to England from their first U.S. visit. They were not featured on the cover of Life magazine until the 28th of August issue, to coincide with their first extensive North American tour, and they would not grace the cover of Time until the 22nd of September, 1967. What George misremembered was that they had been written about in these three major publications prior to their arrival, but they were not on the cover until after. And when I touch you, I feel happy inside. It's such a feeling that my love Capitol announced in a press release on the 4th of December that they had the exclusive rights to release future Beatles records and set the release of I Want to Hold Your Hand for the 13th of January, 1964. Instead of keeping the British B-side ballad This Boy, Capitol thought it would be better to replace it with another upbeat rocker and chose I Saw Her Standing There. Before Capitol knew it, however, the single took on a life of its own. 
When Walter Cronkite showed the four-minute and ten-second CBS News story about the Beatles on the evening of 10th of December, a 15-year-old girl named Marcia Albert was watching with her family in Silver Spring, Maryland. Marcia liked what she heard and wrote to her favorite local radio station DJ, Carol James, of WWDC, imploring him to play their music. To fulfill her wish, James first contacted the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. without any luck. He then arranged for a copy of the Beatles' latest UK single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, released in Britain on the 29th of November, to be brought over by a BOAC airline stewardess. On the 17th of December, James invited Marcia Albert to the WWDC station to introduce the imported record for the first time on American radio, and it ignited. Listeners called in demanding to hear it again and again, and the song was quickly added into the station's heavy rotation playlist. James made a copy of the record for a fellow DJ in Chicago, and another copy made its way to a DJ in St. Louis. So Marsha Albert of Dublin Drive of Silver Spring has the honor of introducing something brand new and exclusive here at WWDC. Marsha, the microphone here on the Carol James Show is yours. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time on the air in the United States, here are the Beatles singing, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Capitol quickly learned that these radio stations were jumping the gun on their yet-to-be-released single, and that there was an audience ready to buy it, so they made the decision to rush their release date forward to the 26th of December. After three weeks, Billboard reported that Capitol passed one million sales for the single. I Want to Hold Your Hand debuted on the American charts on the 11th of January at number 80 on the Cashbox Top 100. The next week it entered the Billboard Hot 100 at number 45 and rose to 43 in Cashbox. The following week, 25th of January, the single was number one on the Cashbox Top 100 and number three in Billboard. The following week it shot up the last two slots to also be number one on the Billboard Hot 100. The Beatles, who had just performed the warm-up show in Versailles for their three-week residency at the Paris Olympia, got the news that they had reached the top of the Cashbox chart in their room at the Hotel George Sunk just before midnight on the 15th of January. We got a telegram um, in the evening after one of the shows when we were having a drink at the hotel. And it, ca- it came uh, Capitol Records, congratulations lads, number one in US charts or something. So we all hit the roof. I remember riding round on Mal Evans' back for about 20 minutes or so. Yay! And he was, you know, happy to burn me. It was just very high uh, hysterics, you know. And Brian rang me uh, around about half past one in the morning. He said, I know you won't mind being woken up. I said, well, I wasn't asleep anyway. He said, well, I've just heard from America. We're number one. Fantastic. He said, do you want to come round? No, no. So we all went round and had a great drink up. It was lovely. Super. We never went to bed that night. It was a great feeling because... We were booked to go there directly after the Paris trip, so it was, you know, it was handy to have a number one. The March 1964 Beatles Book Monthly reported that after the show in Versailles, they made their way back by fast car to the George Sank Hotel and up to the suite. Two of the boys took a quick bath in the marble-walled bathrooms. Then they sat talking, and the news arrived. Direct from London came the message, the Beatles are top of the American hit parade, The boys went mad. Said Mal Evans, who happened to come into the suite immediately afterwards, they always act this way when anything big happens, just like a bunch of kids. 
jumping up and down with sheer delight. Paul climbed onto my back, demanding a piggyback. They felt that this was the biggest thing that had ever happened, and who could blame them? Gradually, they quieted down, ordered some more drinks, especially Cokes, and sat down to appreciate fully what happened. It was a wonderful, marvelous night for all of them. I was knocked out. Celebrations went on until five o'clock in the morning. Somebody else rang through to say it was the fastest rising disc ever by any British artist in the States. That Capitol Records had never known anything like it. Three weeks to hit the top spot, British or American. The boys had plenty to talk about. About their own trip to America, about the thrill of audience reaction that night in Versailles. The truth is that it worked out perfectly for the Beatles. Had the single not done well, they likely would have still gone to America to fulfill their Ed Sullivan show bookings. Even without a hit record, the TV appearances would have been great publicity for them. It's not clear, however, if they would have retained their top billing position. Paul is adamant that he told Brian that they would not go to America until they were number one. But the truth is they were going. It was just, like George said, handy that they were number one. In one aspect, however, it seems that Brian Epstein did listen to Paul, or the group's concerns about not fully committing to an American promotional tour before they had success. Until mid-January 1964, when the group knew they were headed for the toppermost of the poppermost, Brian held off committing to any live performances in the States. After returning from his trip to New York in November, Brian had been approached by an ambitious promoter from General Artists Corporation named Sid Bernstein, who wanted to book the Beatles to play Carnegie Hall. Brian was impressed by the prestigious venue, but waited to finalize the arrangements until it was clear that the group had substantial radio play in America. Bernstein, Walter Hyman, and Hank Barron, who made up Theater 3 Productions, announced the Carnegie Hall shows on the 17th of January and signed a license agreement with Carnegie Hall five days later. Two days after that, Paul was confidently telling Harold B. Kelly of the American Forces Network about the shows during an interview in Paris. Paul, what do you think of your trip to the States? I understand in about a week or ten days you're going to be on the Ed Sullivan Show. Could you tell us about it? Yeah, that's right. We're going to do uh, Ed Sullivan Show in New York, and we're taping one for for later release, sort of thing. And we're looking forward to those. Then we go down to Florida, Miami, can't wait, and we we do another Ed Sullivan there. But I think before that we do a, a Carnegie Hall, don't we? Yeah. Was, yeah. We play on Carnegie Hall. Brian also subsequently booked the Beatles for a show at the Washington Coliseum in the nation's capital. This show was instigated by WWDC radio station, who had sparked off the demand for I Want to Hold Your Hand in December, and promoted by Harry G. Lynn, the owner of the venue. Had the group's latest single been yet another flop in the States, it is unlikely that either concert would have taken place. Yeah, you got that something. I think you'll understand when I say that something In the meantime, VJ and Swan Records woke up to the growing buzz around the Beatles and revived their masters to try and capitalize on the excitement. VJ re-released the two A-sides from their previous singles, Please Please Me and From Me to You, as the two sides of a new single in the first half of January. They also dusted off their previous plans for a Beatles album using the British Please Please Me LP tracks and issued Introducing the Beatles on the 10th of January. Never mind that the group had already released a second UK album in the meantime, VJ had to work with the masters they had in their possession. 
The problem was that they no longer had the licensing rights and were quickly sued by capital. A long and complicated lawsuit ensued, of which the details are beyond the scope of this episode. Swan Records also sought to capitalize on the Beatles' new popularity by re-releasing She Loves You in January. Additionally, Capitol rushed forward the release of their first Beatles album, Meet the Beatles, on the 20th of January. Meet the Beatles was mostly tracks from the British with the Beatles LP, but with the hit single And This Boy added at the start, and most of the covers cut out. MGM also jumped on the bandwagon, so to speak, and issued the failed Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers single of My Bonnie, backed with The Saints, originally released in 1962 on Decca, this time credited to The Beatles with Tony Sheridan. All these records flooded the charts in the first months of 1964. The day after The Beatles arrived in New York, the Billboard Hot 100 held I Want to Hold Your Hand at number one, She Loves You at number seven, Please Please Me at 57, I Saw Her Standing There at 68, My Bonnie at 107, and Billboard's top LPs chart had Meet the Beatles at number 3 and Introducing the Beatles at number 59. From no previous U.S. chart success to complete domination in two months. Incredible. Much of the information in this episode comes from Bruce Spizer's well-researched book, The Beatles Are Coming. At the end of his book, Spizer offers a hypothetical alternative timeline for what might have happened had Capital decided to release She Loves You before I Want to Hold Your Hand. In this alternate timeline, most of the events that took place, such as the Ed Sullivan Show and Carnegie Hall concerts, happened, but were moved forward by a few months to follow Capital's She Loves You release at the end of September 1963. Spizer suggests that had the history played out in this way, and had She Loves You been the success that I Want to Hold Your Hand was, the Beatles could have arrived for their first U.S. visit in November. Most interestingly, Spicer suggests that their arrival could have then easily coincided with President John F. Kennedy's assassination, which would have overshadowed the media coverage of the group and possibly been ruinous to their momentum. For example, Spicer speculates that the assassination on Friday the 22nd of November might have canceled their Sullivan appearance that Sunday. It is only hypothetical, but it is interesting to consider how easily the history could have been different. Much has been written, and I believe overstated, about how President Kennedy's assassination was a contributing factor to the Beatles' success in America. Millions of teenagers in Britain, Europe, Canada, Australia, Japan, and many other countries embraced the group's music and became part of Beatlemania without a preceding national tragedy. Undoubtedly, the American people mourned the death of their youngest president, but there is no substantial evidence to show the connection. If there is a link between the two, it is possibly that the American media latched onto the Beatles because they were a positive, light subject after a period of depressing news stories. In the 11th of February 1964 issue of New York's Daily News, journalist Anthony Burton wrote, It's a relief from Cyprus and Malaysia and Vietnam and racial demonstrations and Khrushchev. Beset by troubles all around the globe, America has turned to the four young men with ridiculous haircuts for a bit of light entertainment. It is very likely that Paul never knew and still does not know all the parts of this history and how they led to the Beatles' triumph in America. To him, the story unfolded how he wanted it to, and he asserts that it was because that's how they wanted it to unfold. While that may be his truth, it is not the whole truth. 
more luck and circumstance. Like many chapters in the group's history, every variable moving piece had to align for their success, and more often than not, the exact right pieces aligned at exactly the right time. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to submit a question or topic for a future episode, you can write to me by email to gimmesometruthpod at gmail.com or contact me on Facebook or Instagram at gimmesometruthpod. I will continue to post visuals for each episode on these platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a future episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a five-star review and tell your friends. All I want is the truth.